So our first question, just to start us off here, is when we look at situations like McKinney, Texas, uh, where a young lady was pinned uh, at a pool party. Uh, she was pinned to the ground in a bikini by an officer. And then more recently, we have a situation in South Carolina where a young lady was flipped in her desk by the deputy. Uh, now, everyone has a different view on this, even within the church. Uh, some feel like it's not necessary to even note that the fact that the young ladies that were the victims, per se, were African-American, uh, and the alleged offenders were white, uh, but some think that those factors are important, and they inspire how we should see the issue, and some believe that those factors are irrelevant. So the first question, looking at situations like that, why do you think that even within the body of Christ, with the same morals and views of God, why do we land at such different points of view when these situations arise in media? Let's start with who's closest to me. <laughs> Just being, you know, uh, being an officer uh, and, and those experiences, what do you think inspires a different point of view on those issues? Well, I think we're all going to bring some, ooh, that was loud. Uh, we're going to also bring some different background to the situation uh, that we've either, you know, grown up in, uh, situations that we've come out of. So, I mean, I can see how everybody would have different views of situations like that. Uh, but at the same time, within the body of Christ, especially me as a Christian officer, I always strive to see things in light of Scripture. And so I would always fall back on the answer that the sin in our lives, what makes us fall short of the glory of God, is always going to discolor what we see and, and, and how we interact with things. Um, I think it's also interesting to note, especially in South Carolina, that there was such a short snippet that we saw. Um, a lot of us who are just standers by from states away uh, only saw that little snapshot of what happened in the classroom. So we're left to fill in what we thought happened with the rest of the scenario with our own lived experience. And so if you've had negative experiences with uh, authority figures like police officers, then that you're probably likely to fill in the blanks of the story with that. If you had positive experiences, you're probably likely to fill in the, the rest of the story with that. What's interesting is that uh, a couple of days ago, maybe last Friday maybe, students were actually rallying behind the police officer at the school. Did you guys, did you guys see that? And so what, what I was thinking is, is that, okay, how does this all work together? Well, he was a, uh, a resource officer for the school. He's also a football coach. And those two are usually beloved sort of positions, at least they were at my you know, uh, high school, because people, the students know them. And so perhaps the relationship that these students have built with this uh, resource officer over time sort of helps fill in the gaps of this narrative that we don't really know. And so, um, but to answer your question, Malik, I think we fill in the, the blanks of the story, which are many in that particular situation, uh, with our own lived experience. To, to add to that, I also think that if, if we think about um, just, you know, the, the history of our country and e even with the limited information, I think what uh, by and large a lot of African-Americans are saying, all right, when, when we look at a 14-year-old girl in a two-piece bikini, um, where could she conceal a weapon? Uh, when, we, when we look at the young girl that was literally thrown and dragged, we're saying we're, we're not negating the other factors. But when we see young African-American women, young girls treated this way, and it seems that we're ignoring what we see. 
And, and that's where you get the, the response. You get the, the anger of saying when we're seeing these things and it's like, OK, um, the, the, there, there is something to mourn about. It doesn't mean that these young girls are totally innocent. I'm, there, there is more to the story. But what we what we uh, what African-Americans are seeking from, especially our brothers and sisters that uh, happen to be white in evangelicalism is, um, is there still some outrage for how these young girls were handled? And, and the fact that that is ignored and we're saying, well, let's get all the facts. It's like, OK, I, I agree. We, we do need all the facts and we shouldn't immediately call for someone's firing. Um, but it does seem excessive and, and we're not sure I mean, how much of a threat uh, that young girl could be. It is possible. But but some of the things that we're seeing and we're hearing, it's like, uh, is, is there any validation? Is there any understanding of, you know, why if you're that person's parent? Uh, of, of the child that's being thrown or being dragged, is, is there any compassion from that perspective? Uh, and, and by and large, we're not hearing that side. And so then that can fuel some rage when it's like, oh, we need to get all the facts. Well, but, but let's not ignore what we saw. Could you at least, okay, we do need to get the facts, but can you also speak to she was dragged, she was thrown, this other girl had a knee put in her back, you know, and, and maybe that's, you can say that's standard procedure, um, but that's just not how everyone else is going to view that and at least seek to understand the other points of view. Well, I'm really glad to be here. I think that uh, just having this discussion is a huge step in the right direction. And I was contemplating today, you know, um, this is one of the panel discussions we won't have in heaven. This is a discussion we won't have in heaven. And, um, and so it's a temporal thing, which also makes it, a, makes it a spiritual thing, which is why I think it's good to, to talk about, you know, the Christian response to that. And, and I, I also was, you know, realizing how complex this is and just being often confused and and knowing what to say when you bring up issues like this. You do have police that we're supposed to respect and, and submit to, and then you've got girls. I mean, I'm a dad. I can't imagine if my girl was treated that way, you know, uh, and, and what might come up with that. And then, of course, you've got, you've got perspective because, you know, from one perspective, you know, we want to look at at these individual cases and say that was wrong that event was wrong that should not have happened and then you've got the perspective of more of a generational perspective where you say well these things have happened and these things continue to happen and so you know you know we really have to recognize that um, there are several different lenses that you know we we can look through and I think that we should look through in, in dealing with this. So, um, I don't have a solution for that. I just had that on the top of my mind. Dr. Aiken, I think, has a solution. <laughs> Please share. <laughs> Actually, uh, I uh, really can't add to what has been said by my uh, other brothers, uh, except this. I agree that it seems to be the case that we aren't learning. In other words, we see this happening over and over and over. And of course, that's an indictment of our sinfulness. Uh, the fact that we continue to see the same tragic patterns again and again and again. 
And uh, so I, I wish there were some sense in which as these things happen, we could learn from them so that in the future we could be uh, more wise, prudent in our responses. And uh, as Pastor Dwayne said, uh, that will be true when we get to heaven. Until then, I suspect we'll be navigating these kind of waters. And the key for us is to navigate them in such a way that we can be redemptive, healing, and that the church actually, instead of being reactive, is actually proactive in setting the agenda that the world then can see the difference that Christ makes and the gospel makes when it's lived out in a community. So, with your responses, I'm going to throw out a term. When these issues come up, we always hear different terms that different communities like to use. So, in response to a lot of the recent issues, we hear the term race baiting. Do you believe that race baiting plays a part in any of these issues? I guess it could, but I, I don't know the hearts of people involved in these things. So, um, I would be hesitant, uh, Malik, to speak in a kind of definitive kind of a way. I think it would be naive to say that there is not the potential for that and that indeed in certain cases that is exactly what took place. I think think in some cases we're too quick to go to racism so it dilutes um, other aspects of where race is involved, but it's not necessarily racism. So I, I kind of break it into maybe three, three sections. Number one is racial ignorance. And, and, and racial ignorance really has to do with proximity. Uh, are you really in genuine community as evangelicals with minorities, or do they just come to your church and you see them? It's, so so if, if you're not in actual community, then you're going to have some racial ignorance, unless you're in an authentic relationship with someone that's racially different than you. Then there's racial insensitivity, Um, hence Donald Trump's comments about Hispanics. Um, That's not necessarily racism, uh, but that's racially insensitive to jump all the certain people and say that they're a certain way. And yes, we have racial insensitivity, racial insensitivity within the evangelicalism when we look at a black pastor and say they're this way. We look at a predominantly black church and say their services are this way without knowing. That's racially insensitive. Then there's racism. Racism, I think we can look at Exodus 1-9. Racism is the oppression of another race for the preservation of your own. And that's exactly what you see Pharaoh doing. Pharaoh saying, I don't want the Israelites uh, to multiply, so I'm going to oppress them so that I can preserve mine. And that's what was done to minorities within this country. So when we think about racism... Um, I think we got to look at them other aspects and say, well, maybe this was racial, racially ignorance or maybe this is racial insensitivity before we immediately go to racism. So I think if we can begin to think in those terms, uh, it, it'll help us because if, if you think you're immediately going to be called a racist, then it may put our brothers in majority culture less likely to speak because they don't want to walk with that label. But, but maybe we need to be able to embrace, maybe I am racially ignorant because I'm just not in authentic relations, relationships. And maybe because of that, I can be racially insensitive and say things that had I been in a relationship with a minority, I wouldn't have said. So, so before we go to racism, I think racism is systemic 
That's what we see in scripture when you look at Exodus 1-9 and we see what Pharaoh attempted to do. But obviously God is a God of justice, so he responds. And so that, that's, what, that's what believers, regardless of your race, should do uh, when you see injustice. And I, I think it's important for us to, um, to be leery of our tendencies. Uh, a tendency could sometimes be to deny any sort of um, reality that race was involved in a situation. Uh, and then to call it race baiting to just wipe the whole thing away. Right. Or there's a tendency to uh, jump to that conclusion while in, in there, there's probably a, a portion of a situation that could have been that. To what degree, that's still probably uh, to be determined. But at the same time, I think we need to know our tendencies and be, uh, as Jerome was saying, listening to our brothers and listening to our sisters who, are, who have a different lived experience that right. informs a perspective that we can begin to bear each other's burdens in that sort of context. Good. Okay. Uh, in a lot of these situations, the police are involved with the folks in their community or some person of some type of authority. But when the situations play out, we see a really radically different response. In some instances where the victimizer or the officer was put on leave or fired, there were people who said this person was wrong and they were deeply hurt by what they did, but there were others who did GoFundMe accounts for the victimizer in these cases. So specifically in the black and white case, and maybe even Hispanic or Asian, but what do you think causes us to look as communities at the police differently? I think it goes back to the reality of, uh, there's a term called collective memory. I was having a conversation with a mentor of mine this morning uh, about this, and we were talking about the, the reality that uh, collective memory is a sort of a public brain trust. And people from different demographics have a sort of shared narrative that they, that they adopt. And that is pronounced even more so in minority communities. And so um, I, I think what, what we have here is that we have a, a narrative that's shared by a people who have found themselves oftentimes on the underside of history. Uh, and, and, that, and that sort of is constitutive of uh, interaction with uh, various types of authority. And so um, there's, it provokes a more immediate response. And so um, my fear, as I was saying earlier today, was that there, there's, a, there's some healthy sort of realities with this collective memory sort of idea where someone can sort of begin to transcend perhaps where they can't come from and then begin to uh, reach back and, and, and do some very positive things in the community from which they've come. But at the same time, that collective memory can be taken hostage by a leader, perhaps, not to say that it always happens, uh, and then used to change the narrative. So I, I guess my, my uh, to kind of land the plane, because I feel like I'm sort of veering all over the place right now, uh, to land the plane and say this, I think collective memory is a very good thing. Because I, I want to tell my children uh, the story of my people. So to the best of my ability, as accurately as I possibly can, so that they might be able to understand what's going on in the world and how to make sense of uh, things that are going on, but at the same time try not to skew the narrative. So um, all that said, I think the reason why people view certain situations in different ways is because there is this sort of collective knowledge, this collective story that's being told and, and um, it's more pronounced, especially in the injustices in minority communities. Let me build on what uh, Walter's saying and also what Dwayne said earlier. I think collective memory is a great thing because I think both for ethnic minorities, but for me, still in the majority 
uh, uh, ethnicity right now, uh, I need to know the story of my own race, uh, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. I also need to become more empathetic to know the story of my brothers and sisters who are ethnic minorities so that, and Dwayne said this a moment ago, what if this had been my daughter? The idea of getting out of my skin into someone else's skin and seeing it from their eyes changes everything. And so often what we do is simply allow our myopic perspective to dominate and we don't therefore stop, pay attention, listen, and learn. And I'm speaking of myself here. I would say over the last four to five years at Southeastern, when we began really emphasizing kingdom diversity, one of the things I became very much aware of is that I needed to just sometimes shut up and listen and learn and be willing to give others the opportunity to tell their story. And then instead of judging it, either negatively or positively, try to empathize with it. So that I am, in essence, getting out of my skin into their skin, getting out of my context into their context. And uh, I, I will tell you, it, it changed the way I have looked at a number of things uh, and, and for the better. And so I think that's one of the ways that we within the community of faith who are bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ can actually again model for the world how we ought to engage these issues, recognizing that they're complex. Uh, whenever you bring humanity together, things are going to be complex doesn't mean that we cannot navigate them but we acknowledge this is not going to be something easy for us to work our way through but it's something worth our investing in to work our way through and i would even say just just uh was it yesterday that we were sitting in your office with some korean brothers yeah. south korean brothers who they were they were we said hey let us know what we can do different and they told us some things that we can do different. And I was very defensive at first. I mean, they were, they were tuning us up, guys. <laughs> but, but rightly so. They were, they were helping us out. And so my, my, my flesh was to just say, but, you know, that perhaps you read this wrong. But I had to sit back and say, you know what? They're valid in what they're saying. We have to hear this. And, and in fact, I think we're going to be better for applying exactly what they were telling us. Right or wrong, it was their perspective. That's how they were seeing the situation. And for us just to, uh, as Walter said, blow it. Well, they just misunderstood. They weren't paying attention. They didn't read well. They didn't listen well. Well, that would have been, first of all, I think a sinful response. Certainly would not have been a helpful response. And so we tried. And, and again, I was the same way at first. And I caught myself. Wait, wait, hold on now. I, I know your tendency is to jab back and say, well, we, we did the right thing for the right reason. Well, maybe we didn't. And I'm very grateful that when we threw out there said, hey, God, if you see anything that you think we could do differently, uh, the uh, pastor from Korea, of course, he's got status. Uh, he pastors a church of 35,000 people, and so he's like a really big dog over there. And uh, so he said, well, you've asked. Uh, here it is. And I do agree. We will do better uh, and, and be more uh, loving, more understanding, more receptive. Uh, because they were given the opportunity to speak truth into our lives, and we didn't try to defend ourselves, we tried to listen. Dr. Lawson, do you see a difference in communication or perception of police from majority communities to minority communities? I have seen it before. Honestly, my, inter my, my view of it is that over, in society as a whole, 
the perception is going down across the board. Mm-hmm. I think part of that goes with um, the lack of authority you see in families. I think it begins in the families. Um, more and more times, uh, I remember getting called out to calls before where the, 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 the child wouldn't get up out of the chair and give his mom the remote. And I'd be like, really? This is, this is what you called me out here for? And so I'd look at the kid and go, give your mom a remote and go to your room. You know, and, and, and so it's kind of like, you know, sometimes they call us in to parent. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, over the years, it seems like there's less and less a recognition of that authority. And, and I don't see that as being, from my perspective, a, a race thing. I see that across the board. Uh, just a lack, of author- lack of, a lack of respect for authority. Mm-hmm. My uh, older brother was a police officer, and um, he always had to fight. He fought all the time. Because you get called to things and there was fights that would broke out, you know, and, and so, you know, when, when I see now all of the social media clips of police officers fighting, I was reminded that's what they do. They fight a lot. And so I don't know if that should necessarily catch us off guard. I think that one of the things that technology has done for us is just given us the realization of what happens. And I think that if we would have had smartphones a hundred years ago, we would be horrified as to how the police or those authorities would treat minorities. Uh, it, it, it may have been worse, you know, than it was today. Uh, so in part, I'm, I'm sort of glad that we are having our eyes opened as to violence and what's going on. And, and then to be honest, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about this because I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, see this um, tension between uh, minority groups and police officers as, uh, as moving in any direction. Because I, I think, you know, you, you by and large are getting this generational narrative from certain groups that is totally accurate and so there is an an impression that the police are against me and then you've got the duty of the police officer you know at the same time and so I, i really i really i think we should be honest in some of this and say we can't be looking for many solutions outside of christ on on these matters i was reflecting um today on what Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, what he did with the Roman centurion. And I mean, the Romans, you talk about police abuse. It was horrible what they did to the Israelites. It was horrible. And the Roman centurion came to Jesus and said, Hey, I know you can. Would you be willing to heal my, my close friend, my my companion and, and my partner and, and, and Jesus said yes and I mean, he, he said let's go do it and, and he said no look I'm a man of authority I, I know how this works whatever I say happens I've got all these soldiers I just you know say it, it happens and you can just say it and then, of course then Jesus not only did he explain to the disciples the faith of this centurion he went on to say something incredible about how this is the type of guy that will be in his kingdom But this type of guy was trained to be incredibly abusive to Israelites. 
And, and even when Jesus, he, when, even when he said, if you remember Jesus saying that if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn your other cheek, that's because Roman soldiers were allowed to abuse. Legally, they had a limit to the extent that they could abuse anybody. So in Israel, a Roman soldier could come up to you and just slap you in the face. And then Jesus said, then turn and let him do it again. A Roman soldier could demand that you carry all of his equipment a mile. He said, okay, do it another mile. So there's something about, I think, what Christ, you know, did and, and, and taught us that I think is a part of the solution here. But I, I don't know if, if you know, we're going to be too productive in, in finding that outside of, of Christ. We want to get a few different vantage points on some of these things, so we want to specifically ask Walter and Jerome to answer last. What is your perspective, helpful or hurtful, the Black Lives Matter movement? I think it's helpful in part. Black Lives Malik. Matter. I think it's helpful to uh, raise the uh, attention of uh, our nation about what has been the plight of African Americans for a long time and unfortunately we still see uh, examples of it continuing uh, today and, and, and Dwayne is right given technology now we, we all see it uh, and we see it uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I did a tweet in response to it and I said I do agree that black lives matter but within the kingdom of God all lives matter. Uh, ethnicity uh, is secondary in terms of family. And so I want to uh, affirm that because I do think black lives matter and that's something that needs to be put on the front burner right now given some of the things that happen. Uh, but then when you saw people coming back saying, well, all lives matter and you had a lot of blowback on that, that, that didn't encourage me because I think all lives matter. And what I actually did was I used it to turn it toward the issue of abortion. And I say, yeah, all lives matter from the moment of conception till natural death, regardless of ethnicity. And that's the biblical perspective, that all lives matter from conception till natural death. And we want to keep that as the overarching agenda. But in various contexts, it is probably appropriate and right to emphasize specific uh, uh, components. One of the best things we can do for us, all of us, is get our tails out of America and go somewhere where we are in the minority status, and you'll get a completely different perspective for me on what it's been like for my black brothers and sisters, my Asian brothers and sisters, my Hispanic brothers and sisters, uh, Indian uh, brothers and sisters here in America, because when you're in the minority, say, in a country like China, India, Turkey, we can keep going a long time, you, you see it from a completely different perspective when you are now not in the majority and in power, but you're the minority and you are vulnerable. And that has helped me, I think, in this area in our country because when you're there, it's different. It's, it's a lot different. And therefore, it opens up our eyes to see what some of our brothers and sisters and what others in this country have had to endure. I would just say one other thing, as I was thinking about, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter from a, again, from a police officer standpoint or law enforcement background, um, I sort of see law enforcement as doing things that even the church has not done until recently. I mean, until very recently, we, you know, there was, it was very normal to see a white church and a black church with no diversity in, within the congregation. And yet, 
you know, one thing that's common in law enforcement, the same as it is in the military, is law enforcement and military have been integrated for decades longer than it seems like anything else around society. So when I think about the color of somebody's skin, when it comes to working with them from a law enforcement side, I didn't care what color they were. If they had a badge and gun on, they were my brother. You know, I mean, we, we go to battle together, you know. So to, I, I, think the, I think the negative side of that campaign then is to somehow then flip that around and blame the police or somehow target the police as being the problem. Um, because again, from a law enforcement standpoint, we're responding to the calls. I mean, we don't, you know, the worst thing that can happen in a police officer's life is to have to pull that trigger. I mean, that, you know, that's my perspective. Um, your, your family is going to be brought under the, the microscope for months to come. Um, you know, everything you did out there is going to be brought under the microscope. It can mean a loss of job. I've seen it mean people have to move. Uh, we had a, a guy, again, in my old department who had to, to, uh, to shoot a girl. He had to end up moving because he constant threats by his house, people honking the horns, throwing things at his house. And so the last thing that a police officer wants to do is, is have to pull that trigger. Um, where was I? I don't know where I was going. I feel like you now I'm circling here. But the point again is, is just, you know, again, it, the, I think the wrong response, though, I guess is where I was going with that, is out of that is, is to only see law enforcement as a problem. And that's, that's my concern with it is all of a sudden now we have, you know, the targeting of police officers. Police officers getting shot in their patrol cars where they're, you know, just sitting on the side of the road. Uh, you know, another one died today, another, another police officer shot in the head uh, for no apparent reason, you know, outside of the fact that they had the uniform on. Uh, when I saw it on the news, I had like a million things go through my head like it always does. And I was like trying to filter all through, you know, is this a anti-police thing? Is this a, what is this, a political thing? Is it? And then I thought, that's heartbreaking that there would even need to be that statement, like the question. So then once I kind of try to filter through my own bias, I guess I was sad. And then, to be honest, I felt... Um, I feel a disconnect because I don't think I understood why, you know, why someone would even have to say that. Okay. I mean, I, I think the, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, the reality that it has to be stated, uh, because obviously all lives do matter, but if there seems to be, especially from a, uh, the African American perspective, that it needs to explicitly be stated, that's that's sort of bespeaks there's an issue. I mean, even. So, uh, full disclosure, today I left my wallet in my office, and I noticed it when I got home. But as I was coming back for this event, I said, Walter, you've you got to be very, very careful. And I was like, I mean, I was, I was petrified, and, I, and my heart's like pounding even thinking about the reality of driving without a license because I'm like, well, I'm an African-American male driving at night. Um, and, I, and it's not that I, I'm, I think every cop's out to get me, but I just... Reckon with the reality and, the, and, and what has happened in recent months that have been so public and even things that have gone on that haven't been very public that I, I, was, I was petrified to drive three and a half or four miles from my house to here. And so, because I was like, because my life matters. And so, and, and I think that uh, this, this statement needs to be said because, I mean, I think there, there, there's times when um, I can be... So, I mean, I think, I think media is a big culprit here, to be honest with you. Um, media portrays, visually portrays, uh, I mean, I've read studies about this all over the place, but 
you know, some 75% of violent crimes as being minorities. Uh, media portrays, you know, a lot of things disproportionately. If you see a, uh, an image of a crime that's violent or of a murder, it's often going to be a person of color. And so the, the, there's, there's a sort of indoctrination subtly that sort of bespeaks a reality that these people are the aggressor, therefore they just don't matter. And so, one, be careful as you're watching TV, be careful, be careful as you're taking in information because it's teaching you something. Um, and then, in response to that, we have to say black lives do matter because we have subtly learned all these, all these things. And so, um, as far as the movement itself, uh, I, I really hope that there's some sort of uh, methodology or ideology that comes out of it where we can see, okay, this is exactly what they're going to do. One thing I, I really appreciate about Martin Luther King that every engagement that he went into, there was a plan, it was very strategic, and everyone knew what it was when they went in there, and when they achieved it, it was done. And so uh, I, I look forward to seeing uh, if there's that sort of strategic planning coming out of the movement, uh, and, and I hope that that's the case, and I hope it doesn't become an anti-police sort of reality. Uh, but I think there's some work that, and some conversation that can be had there for, for all of us to be sharpened. Uh, but at the same time, it's, I'll, I'll just kick it over to Reverend Jerome so he can finish it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to give us some numbers. Uh, Twelve, uh, that was the age of Tamir Rice, a young African-American boy shot by police playing with a toy gun. Eleven, uh, that's the amount of times Eric Gardner yelled, I can't breathe. Ten, that's the number of times Jonathan Farrell was shot in Charlotte, unarmed, at close range. Nine, uh, the day in August last year that Michael Brown, again unarmed, was shot and killed. Eight, the number of unarmed black men shot by March this year. Seven, the age of Ayanna uh, Jones shot by a cop in Detroit. And six, uh, of November, 965 people have been killed by police, uh, and black men are two times likely to be killed. That's just a few numbers. What Black Lives Matter is doing is bringing attention to this disparity. Uh, some of you were not aware of these numbers. Now keep in mind, one was a 12-year-old little boy, one was a 7-year-old little girl. All of the officers got off, every single one. Um, if, if we can be honest about sin, then we would have to also be honest that not everyone, not every cop, is sin-free. Not every cop is a good cop. But when African Americans say something about it, it's presented to us as if every single cop is a good one. And the reality is that's just not the truth. Now, do we know? No, God knows. But what Black Lives Matter is doing is saying, let's, let's look at the fact that black men are presented as threats. Let's look at the fact that black men are seen as threats. Let's look at the fact that when, uh, statistically, when a white man does it, it's a mental illness, but when a black man does it, he's a thug. That's an issue. And that shouldn't be just an issue that I'm passionate about. If, if the gospel, which is not colorblind, but it's color engaging, if it truly is color engaging, that should be our issue. And so when Black Lives Matter say that, I'm not saying I agree with all of their tactics, but I am saying that it is a statistical fact that I'm more likely to get shot. It, it, it's a fact that I have to tell my son, son, in this country, this is how you're seen. And so when we talk about that, when we think about that, that shouldn't be an African-American plight if we're truly brothers. 
But then again, that goes back to racial ignorance. We're not in community together, which leads to racial insensitivity. They need to get over it. Racial insensitivity. What about black on black crime? Does black on black crime mean we ignore white on black crime? That's what we're presented with. And so when you think of it from that perspective, yes, black lives matter, all lives matter. But when we look at stats, when we look at sin, when we look at reality, when we look at the history of our country, I mean, we still had to do civil rights, not even just a little over 50 years ago. There was systemic injustice against people that looked like me. I couldn't even go to some seminaries. I couldn't go to some people who, who, who said they understood the doctrines of grace. That wasn't extended to me. So when we think about that, how could we say that it's a level playing field? How, how could we possibly, with, with any ounce of reality, say that? And so when we get passionate about this, the, the, the passion and the anger comes from, it's like we need, we need, and this is where the liberals come in, because they seem to be listening more than the ones who, quote unquote, understand the doctrines of grace. And so from that perspective, I'm not saying I agree with everything as a, uh, as a gospel-centered uh, Christian who puts my, my faith before my ethnicity, uh, but God still created me black. And, and, and the same way others can have an affinity for their people, it's not necessarily wrong to do that. I'm going to look at these numbers that a 12-year-old little boy shot, a 7-year-old little girl shot, and something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. And so, uh, and these are just a few. I, I, we could keep going. That's what they're bringing attention to, that there's a disproportionate amount of unarmed African-Americans murdered and we're presented with, the, with, with what I believe to be a false reality, that all of them, 100% of them out of 965 so far this year, 100% of them are just? Come on. We can't believe in sin and then believe that 100% of these are just. That's what they're bringing attention to. From that perspective, I can agree. Do I agree with taking a, 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 a political candidate's mic? I don't agree with that. Um, I believe in tact. I believe in grace. Uh, but grace doesn't mean that we ignore sin. That's why Paul says, shall we keep, keep on sinning that grace may abound? That rhetorical question is answered. Certainly not. And so when we see this being done to minorities, that's a sin issue. That is a theological issue. And we need to bring attention to it. And so I'm glad that Dr. Aiken's on board. I'm seeing Russell Moore. Uh, that, so, so this thrills me. Um, but, but hopefully we can get to a point where uh, you, you talk about being a minority that Maybe we can work something where instead of doing two plus two overseas, we have Southeastern students doing two years within Raleigh serving under minority leadership. Because then that's going to help you begin to understand from a practitioner and not just an idea. So yes, from that perspective, all lives do matter, but there are some disproportionate realities as to why we need a Black Lives Matter. And just real quick, uh, another disproportionate reality that the Black Lives Matter movement is taking on is the prison industrial complex. Right. I, I don't know exactly what the stats are, but even tonight as I was driving back from my house, I said there's a, I'm, I'm more likely to end up in prison for driving without a license tonight than, than Dr. Aiken, per se. And, and I, don't, I don't say that to just get mad, and just, but I'm just saying, okay, well, I was rehearsing in my mind what would go on if I were to get pulled over. I'm like 10 and 2, you know, don't make any subtle movements. And I'm, I'm seriously rehearsing this in my mind because I don't want to get harmed. Right. I mean... Seriously, this is not a joke. 
I was at the stop sign, a stoplight, rehearsing this. I was like, because I don't want to go to jail tonight. I don't want to get shot for a subtle movement. Not that every cop is bad, but right, those right. are the things that are going through my mind. I want to go home to my wife tonight, and my kids. Yeah. What do you think is the climate amongst officers concerning these statistics? Well, again, I mean, I, you know, I, I understand you can take some statistics, and so I'm not trying to you know, lessen anything that, that Jerome said. Um, but because I agree, I mean, some of those are horrible situations that they're in. But again, um, some situations, though, again, get blamed on the police officer. When I would turn it around and go, where was the parents? Where was the training? Where was the upbringing, you know, of, uh, in that situation? You know, a, a child of, you know, you say a child of 12 that you know is tragically shot I, don't, I agree that that's a totally tragic situation but if you go back and read the details again it was a gun it was a toy, toy gun, gun that looked exactly like a, a real gun and so uh, Graham versus Connor 1989 you have to put yourself back into the place of a police officer in that situation and and the and it's called a reasonable reasonable call what would a reasonable officer in that same situation do given the circumstances and given the fact that he's got to make a decision in a matter of seconds, whether it's going to be his life or the suspect's life, the child's life, however you want to refer to him in this case. Um, and that's what you've got to go back and put, your, put, your, put yourself into. So some of the outcome of this now, though, uh, interesting article the other day in, uh, I think it was Sh uh, Chicago Tribune, uh, Emmanuel, what's his last name? Guy used to work for uh, Obama. Uh, Mayor, yeah, Emmanuel. Uh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, Rahm Emanuel. He actually was quoted in the article saying that uh, within, in Chicago, crime rates are on the rise because police officers are not acting. So in other words, because of a lot of these issues that have come out within society, they are not, they're no longer being proactive because they're afraid that every time they get out of their car, somebody with a camera is going to film them and it's going to be the end of their career. Uh, and so he was actually quoted as saying, you know, that, that they're, they're having an astronomical rise in murder rates and, and every other type of violent crime because police officers are no longer acting. And I think that's the, that's the dangerous side of this because, whenever, when, again, when, when every time, um, you know, you try to go back and, and, you know, armchair quarterback what they did on the street, uh, it's, it's just another time where, from a police officer side, we look at that and go, well, then... I don't care. I'm going to stay in my patrol car. You know, I can, I can look the other way and, and go around the corner and just wait for the call to come in, and then I'm not being proactive in the situation. And so I think that's where you're going to see some of the negative results of some of this. So, again, you know, like I said before, I mean, no officer wants to have to pull that trigger. No officer wants to be put in that situation. And so the reaction right now is it's, it's turning them back to reactive. And instead of being proactive in the policing, they're going back to being more reactive. If I can interject, uh, I mean, I, I do want to say this. In no way uh, am I insinuating that uh, a white officer, if a black suspect reached for his gun, shouldn't protect himself. I understand that he's trying to get home uh, to his family. We had a member, an African-American, that was an officer, and, and I've, I've gone with him to see what was happening in the South Raleigh, uh, which is the poor zip code in Raleigh, an area that, that needs good officers. Um, but even with Tamir Rice, I mean, it was two seconds, and when they shot him, when you go back and, and, and look at the tape, I, I think that there is, there is this reality that it's not always the officer's fault. 
Um, again, to, to the question, though, what we're saying is these people are called to protect and serve, and we're twice as likely to, to die unarmed. That's an alarming stat. It's not always the officer's fault, right? But, but we do need to bring some attention to say, okay, that let's, let's do our best um, to, 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 to dispel this myth about black men. And then, you know, Walter, you talked about mass incarceration. We're more, like, we're, we're more likely to do double the time for the same crime that a white person does. And so when we, when we that's again, these are things that Black Lives Matter, they're bringing attention to, like, we're, we're, this, is, this is the new Jim Crow for us, mass incarceration, to where uh, my white brother gets a second chance, the black dude gets 10, 10 years. And so the, these are the things that we're talking about. So I do, I do agree with that, um, that in, in no way, I, I, in no way would I say, would I side with the, the guy who reached for the gun? White or black, you're trying to get home. I totally understand that. And, and you were justified, and you'd be justified in doing that. But when we go through those numbers I gave you, and 965 so far this year, and I'm, me and Walter and, and Malik are twice as likely, and Walter's terrified, that's a problem. That's a problem that I have to tell my son, son, don't move quick, because daddy wants you to come home. He's only four now. But I'm going to have to have that conversation with my son in this country. So when we look at it, that's, that's trying to help others understand our plight, that it's not the same <laughs> for us. I mean, you're at a predominantly white seminary. You're in a position in power. Uh, but there's still this reality that everyone cares about that. So you're terrified. That's a reality that we have to live with. And, and, and again, that Black Lives Matter is bringing attention. I, again, I don't agree with all the tactics, and, but in that sense, I think it is helpful. To close this portion of our panel, we'll take one of our social questions. And the question is, how do you think the outcomes would differ if the officers were black and the victims were white? I think in some instances, people would go nuts. White people would go nuts. Crazy white people would go nuts. And there are a lot of crazy white people. Um, <laughs> None of them up here, though, right? No. Uh, up here, you got, you got the same brothers up here. So, yeah, we're, we're all good up here. But, no, I think, to be honest with you, Malik, there would be an outcry uh, in, uh, in many quarters. Uh, I would hope there wouldn't be. Uh, I really do want us to get to a point where uh, I can read a story in the, uh, online see no faces, so I don't know the ethnicity of anybody, and I don't make any prior judgments. If, if someone gets um, shot by a police officer, uh, to the best of my ability, I want to just simply say, if someone got shot by a police officer, then we'll move on into the more complex questions later, but I don't want to make any prior judgment and assume, well, yeah, I, be I bet it was a, a white guy gunning down a black guy. Uh, or as you say, uh, but that, that's so rare. Uh, I can't think of an instance where a black police officer shot a uh, white child. Um, we actually had one in Wake Forest, the last yeah. one. At, uh, and I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm a, here's a moment of confession for you. Um, the 17-year-old the guy that was shot at the factory two months ago, uh, it was a black and white officer out there, so it was it was an officer of each color. Uh, suspect was white, but also served as a chaplain for the police department. 
And so this was after a lot of the issues of the summer. And, uh, and honestly, so this is also coming from law enforcement side, seeing what had happened in other places like Ferguson and some of the, some of the what had happened there. And, and honestly, the whole way in, I didn't know yet, but I was hoping that it wasn't a black guy that got shot. Because I could see, uh, you know, I hope, I hope this, and, and honestly, when I heard it was a black officer and a white suspect, what went through my mind initially was, well, thank goodness because maybe we won't have any issues. Um, and that's sad. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's yeah. my moment of confession. That's, it no, really is. It, it's sad. Um, but that's honestly what went through my mind was, well, hopefully this will just go over. And I think sometimes it never makes the media. Well, let me ask you a question. I think it'd be helpful for all of us. So you were a chaplain. You go over there. Tell me how the police officer, I mean, what, what was their thinking? What was their feelings? How, how did you minister to them through this? I, I was, what was their reaction? As police officers having shot somebody. Well, the same as I've said. I mean, for them, it's, it's, again, it's nothing that we ever desire. We all understand when we put that gun on, we put the badge on, that that's a possibility. Uh, me being a Christian, I deal with it, I think, from a, a different perspective than, than some of them. Um, but again, for them, it, it's, it's it, you know, they're thinking the same thing. Is this my career? Is this my, yeah. what's going to happen to me over the next few weeks? What's going to happen to me over the next few months? You know, the SBI has got to come in. It's an investigation. It's questioning. It's, you know, uh, and so, you know, it's tough. I mean, in any situation. Uh, in that situation, I think it was clear. I mean, you know, they, they ordered him multiple times to drop the gun. He didn't, and they had to do what they had to do. And so, uh, again, but, and it's gone by. I don't, there hasn't been any, any reaction. So I think sometimes your answer is, uh, sometimes I think we can't call a, recall a case because a lot of times the, the media won't even pick it up. Yeah, I'm sure it happens. Uh, we're going to transition into the next portion of our panel. We'll have a break after that and then we'll, we'll close. But this portion of the panel will be more institutional, talking about theological institutions, schools, uh, and issues of race that do arise there. Uh, recently, Pastor Charlie Dates, pastor of Progressive Chicago, uh, wrote an article called Why I'm Not Turning My Back on the Black Church. And in that article, he explained how he once pastored a young man. Uh, the man, young man went to an uh, African-American male. He went to a predominantly white seminary. Uh, and after coming back from seminary, he confessed to Pastor Dates that he developed this over critical mindset of the black church. He came back after seminary very critical of aspects and he felt the theology wasn't good enough and the preaching wasn't in line with the gospel. Uh, and he wasn't sure why, but he knew that he developed this post his time at a predominantly white seminary. So for you being involved in seminary and various different aspects, what do you think inspires this negative perception of the black church? Well, I'll just go ahead and start because um, I have a personal testimony in this area, and I've, Jerome and I, we've had conversations at Lent about this. Um, for myself, I grew up in a predominantly black church and then a predominantly white church, so I had this really mixed bag of an upbringing. And uh, I went to a school that taught the scripture, uh, very committed to, to uh, this is my undergrad education, very committed to biblical exegesis and all the stuff that we love here at Southeastern as well. Um, but as I was there, um, something happened to me. I didn't really know what happened to me until my first year at Southeastern. I read my first book written by an African-American writer. And um, 
I was critical of the book from the time I opened it to the time I closed it. And, and all through the book review, I just ripped this person. Um, two years later, I reread the book review because I just found it because I'm a nerd and I stick my little book reviews into my books and just, hey, I wonder what I was thinking about this book, you know. Uh, so I reread it. Nobody does this, but I did. And um, I was I was shocked by the fact that I was so critical about this book and about this author. So much so that I reread the 350-page book by Leroy Fitz called The History of Black Baptists. I reread the whole book. And I was like, why in the world was I that critical of him? Mm-hmm. What happened to me is that um, I got serious about learning when I went to college. And uh, at that, when I went into college, everybody who I knew as an intellectual authority was a white person. Everybody that I knew who... Um, was supposed to be someone who can, who can contribute to the theological or even social dialogue was white. And so it, it sort of, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up because I'm just, this is a very, very personal and vulnerable sort of moment for me. Um, it did something to me that I didn't know was happening. It sort of uh, made me think that anybody of color has nothing positive to contribute to a dialogue. So whenever I watched a, a newscast and someone of color came up, I wrote them off. Because subtly I was taught that we had nothing to say. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why I... I'm sorry. Sorry, brother. And now we're taking That's off. That's good. <laughs> the the reason why I, 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 I teach theology now... And I try to jump through all the educational hoops I did is because I didn't want someone to come into a a context like this that has so much to offer, so much great commission vigor, so much desire to train people to fulfill the great commission and to just make the local church as robust as possible. I didn't want somebody to come through and think that we have nothing to say. People of color have nothing to contribute to this dialogue. And so I, I resonate with that student. But the Lord has sort of worked in me through various ways a, an appreciation for my own people and our theological heritage and the, and the fact that just because it's not published by Crossway out there, it's there. And it's robust. Come on. And we have to find it. Nin, or, uh, or 1890, Charles Octavius Booth wrote a, a book called Theolo- Plain Theology for Plain People. This is an African American with the, with the Doctrine of Divinity who wrote a systematic theology. And so it's phenomenal. You should pick it. Well, you know, I don't even think we... It's hard to find it. And so all this, all this said, there's a temptation to think that just because many of the people of authority that I'm seeing, that I'm told to respect, that I actually do respect because they put in time into study, that I, I can't trust anybody who doesn't have the same lived experiences they do. And so therefore I invalidate the ecclesial or lived experience of people outside of that because it's atypical. And so um, I, I, just want, I just want to say I, I understand where this student is coming from, but I want to say that there is a robust heritage yes. in the black church. And what Charlie Dade says is so wise. He says, if you think that black preachers and black pastors and black church are just a bunch of prosperity, you know, gospel uh, people and who are just more concerned about form or about form than content, then stop watching TV and go to a black church. Come on. Because there's a lot of depth there. Can't go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely passionate about this, guys. Um, j- just historically, 
um, that's been our story. Um, so we hear about Paul Revere, uh, even in history, but we don't hear about Wentworth Cheswell, uh, who was an equal part of the success of, of that. We, even, even just anthropologically, uh, Charles Darwin wrote The Descent of Man and said that the black race resembled monkeys and were, by that, inferior. So, so, so even outside of this realm, we have always been seen still as three-fifths, if that. So it, w- when you think about it from an um, a institutional perspective, uh, a couple things. One, what, what, what Walter's talking about really is something that we don't really talk about uh, in settings like this, and that's how uh, minorities can come into an institution like this and really give into self-hatred, which actually opposes the Imago Dei. That, 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 that black people, Hispanic, Asians, white, we were all made in the image of God. But because settings like this, uh, we have what's called, what I call the deification of epistemology. There's, we deify what we know, the MDiv, the THM. Great, I'm, I'm trying to get mine, <laughs> so yeah, I get it. But, but we, we begin to deify these things and we, and we look down on others. And so what happens is uh, a black student comes having a bad experience at one or two black churches. He comes here and says the black church doesn't have the gospel. And what's sad is when our white brothers affirm that. Because he couldn't have gone to all of them. No way he could have went to all of them. But he comes here, and because, remember, racial ignorance, racial insensitivity, because, because you have a, character, a caricature of the black church, you affirm his self-hatred. You just enable sin. And so we got to be careful because institutions like this can breed that self-hatred again because we're inviting black people to predominantly white churches, but we're not serving under their leadership. And so because of this cycle then you, you see those things happening. Lastly, a lot of times when we do talk to um, those in majority culture about what they read by blacks, it's, I read The Decline of African American Theology. And, and I love the beauty, but uh, the people highlighted in that book were Howard Thurman, James Cone, and Creflo Dollar. That nowhere near covers the spectrum of solid African American theologians. But we hear those three and because our experience is the decline of African-American theology and what we see on TBN, that's what, how we label the black church. And when you study our rich history, it's amazing that African-Americans are Christians. They took Genesis out of context to say that we were cursed in the Schofield Bible. And we still believe. We knew we got God preserved. And so it was illegal for us to read. But what we could read, we knew that Jesus, we, that's why the black pastor focused on Exodus so much, even during slave times, because they saw that God was a God of justice and how that related to his story. The black man may have not called it Christ-centered preaching, but he always saw Jesus in David's story. And at the end of his sermon, whether he hooped or however he communicated, he was going to get to Jesus. But again, we, we have to get out of our homogenous circles. We, we have to really in particular have white men serve under black men intentionally displacing themselves mm-hmm. as a response to the gospel in order to deal with that. Until then, 
we'll still have our ideas about the black church uh, without actually being in one, uh, which in, in some ways could be gossip. Because until you've actually been there, all you know is what you've heard. And so we got to be careful that we're not encouraging self-hatred because someone had a bad experience and then we label all black churches this way. That's just simply not true. And we do have a rich history of gospel-centeredness, biblical orthodoxy, and missionality. A rich history. And when we begin to dig in, you, you'll see that. When we look at our... Do you have something? Uh, when we look at our institution, uh, an honest critique, even in having gone through the college here, is that we have several minority students that come here. So there's no problem with minorities coming to a predominantly white institution. Uh, and many of them, I remember specifically in my time in the college here, there were seven other African-American men. And of the eight, including myself, I was the only one who attended an African-American-led church. So we see minorities that are willing to be under white leadership. But when we look at our institution, we don't see the mass majority of our white students under minority leadership. So first, for Dr. Aiken and Pastor Dwayne, do you think that there's a fear for white students to be under minority leadership? That's a great question, Malik. I don't know if there's a fear as much as there's an uncertainty. And it's just not been part and partial of their life and their history. And the fact of the matter is we all, uh, that's not too strong. Most of us tend to gravitate toward what we're familiar with. And, and so as a result of that, uh, most white students just tend to gravitate toward white churches. Uh, and uh, they're, they're comfortable there. That, that, that's their tribe, so to speak. Uh, which comes back a little bit to what you asked a moment ago about the, the church and the seminary. What I've learned over the last several years, and you guys have been so helpful to me, is you can't just hope that these things will come to pass and then leave it at that. Mm -hmm. You have absolutely got to be intentional. Uh, Jerome said it so well. Someone that's in a position of authority gladly, joyfully, willingly surrenders that authority to someone else because they see it as building the kingdom and seeing it as authenticating the gospel. Now, that goes against our natural inclinations. Who wants to give up authority? Who wants to release power? Uh, that's not something any person is going to do in their natural state, but you will do that because of Christ. You will do that as an outgrowth of the gospel. And so one of the things, I, and I've shared this with you and some others, one of my prayers for Southeastern uh, in the years ahead, as long as God leaves me here, is not only to see a growth in student population, which we've seen, uh, but it's not where I want it to be, but we're moving quickly in the right direction. But I want to see a growth in our faculty and uh, having Walter and having Edgar Aponte and now having Deuce as part of our faculty, which has all happened in the last uh, two, two and a half years. Uh, I want to see it grow there, but I want to see it grow in our administration. I want to see it grow in the upper level leadership. And to be honest with you, if in God's good grace, um, after I depart the position that I hold, if South, whether that's two years from now or 12 years from now or whatever, I would be thrilled beyond measure if an African-American or an Asian or Hispanic were to step in and be the next president of this institution. I would rejoice in that. Would that mean that we have arrived? Absolutely not. 
but it would certainly make a, a very, very large statement. Just like it was a large statement when Fred Luter right. got elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Did that mean, oh, well, we've, we've elected a black man, so now we can just kind of go on? No, 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 no. That was more symbolic than it was anything else. Not that he did not have power, but if anyone's ever studied the SBC, you know the president really, I don't care what color he is, has a limited amount of power, and he's only there for two years anyway. So he had the authority that all the others had had, but it was more of a symbolic statement that I hope then would pave the way for real substantive change to take place. But again, if you're not consciously aware of what you're trying to accomplish, it will not happen by accident. It's something you have to go after with a passion and a zeal, believing that it's right and believing that you're not going to let anything get in the way to keep you from accomplishing it. So, uh, so helpful to hear all of this. I was um, thinking about uh, my history of preaching buff, and um, I, was, I was thinking about the history of black preachers in our country, and it's rich. And uh, there's been some good writing, there needs to be more, you know, on that. And I was, I was uh, contemplating Richard Allen, who founded the uh, African Methodist Episcopal AME Church for the very reasons that you guys were talking about, because he wasn't allowed into leadership. He wasn't allowed to preach to white people. And um, he started his own thing, and it was very successful and the, the founding principles were Christian discipleship, Christian teaching, Bible doctrine, and reaching out, you know, to uh, society. And it was solid. And, and so what, what we have is a bit of uh, a confusion and a dichotomy, I think. Because, you know, currently in my church we have a, a growing uh, Chinese ministry, we have a growing Spanish ministry, uh, we have a growing French African ministry. Most of those are first generation from uh, the Congo and other French speaking African cultures. Uh, we have African Americans. The hardest, I think, uh, minority group to, uh, to get involved in my church would be the African Americans, not the first generation minorities that, that come in. And I think Part of the reason is because of this black church, white church dichotomy, which historically, you know, I think um, came about to be for some very unbiblical reasons. But nonetheless, it, it is what it is. But it remains. So then, I agree 100% with what you're saying because I think part of the answer is we need more African-American pastors committed like Allen to discipleship, biblical teaching, and these constructs. And, and we need that so that we can see how God is wanting and desiring and loving for preachers to be from, you know, all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds. Okay. That being said, I, I don't, and I, I, I don't want to promote the continued dichotomy because I, I don't think that we can stand for the sustenance of black church, white church, Chinese church, Filipino church, whatever church, 
in a community that's mixed. Right. I just don't think we can. And I don't think we should. And I don't think the Bible allows for it. Because the New Testament was written to churches that had a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And that racial bias extended for thousands of years. A lot, 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 lot longer than the white-black issues that we're trying to, to focus on today. And Paul was trying to integrate leadership. Right. Timothy, Titus. To try to get Jews to sit under Titus' teaching. Right. And it was hard. It was hard to do that. And, and, and to get, you know, uh, to get Gentiles to, to sit under, you know, Timothy and, and, and some of the other Jewish, you know, apostles teaching. So, I, I really think this is a big part of the solution. But, but I think we also have to be honest in, in recognizing that there is uh, a remaining danger that I, I continue to see in, in that there's not more of a, a geocentric desire for a local church as opposed to an ethnocentric desire for a local church. Because a geocentric desire for a local church seems to be to be the biblical model. Reach the people of Philippi. Reach the people at Corinth. All kinds of people at Corinth. All kinds of people at Corinth. And appoint elders. Who? The people there. And, and they need to be representative of the people there. So then, if I'm downtown, I'm going to go visit Vision Church. And what I would expect is that at Vision Church, it would try to represent the community that exists in downtown Raleigh. It may be a majority-minority church because of the majority uh, of, of the area is more African-American than white or whatever, Hispanic. But, but if I can say, I want to find the church that is the most Christ-centered, gospel-focused, Great Commission-minded, that's what I'm going to find. And I think my kids are much more open to this than even, you know, my parents would be, definitely, than yes, come. And then you make sure that if one of my white kids has leadership potential, you're going to say that to them. Serve with me. Let me train you. Just as what I need to do is in my community that I'm trying to reach to do the very same thing. And, and, and so, you know, in, in this discussion, let's remember, the church belongs to Jesus. Mm -hmm. It belongs to Christ. And we've got to make sure that in all things we are on. I came from an independent Baptist background. When, when my independent Baptist uncles, when I told them I was going to study a PhD, to do a PhD in preaching at a Southern Baptist school, they blackballed me. And that's, that's a whole white thing, right? They're like, we, are you kidding me? At Southern Baptist? You can't be a Southern Baptist. They're liberals, they're this, they're, you're that, they're whatever. And, and so there are, as, there are there as, as many, I think, stereotypes that have been permeated even in white churches, Hispanic churches, you know, and in other churches that we could all, you know, say... Well, okay, we've got to get over that, and we do. But, but what I'm really encouraged is that you're here, you're here, and you're here not just representing Afro-American believers in African-American churches. You're here representing the fact that now we can see and now we, we have a better understanding 
of, of what it means and how it is that we can equip and train other than white leaders to lead our churches. But there are churches, you know, in a sense. Your church is, is in a sense, my church as well because of what we do. That was a little preaching, sorry. That's <laughs> all good. Uh, Dr. A, can you test on this a little bit? But just speaking from the standpoint of the institution, and I'd like everybody to jump in on this to give your different perspectives. But looking at Southeastern Seminary, do you think that at her current state, is our community prepared to respect and affirm a minority president? Southern Baptist? Southeastern. Well, let's start with Southeastern and then go to the broader convention. Uh, do I think the makeup of Southeastern students, uh, faculty, uh, staff would be open to that? Yes, I think they would. Do I think the overall SBC would? I think they would have a harder time. Uh, Fred Luter, when he was uh, president, came here and preached for us, and he did a Q&A with the faculty, and he said, you know, I've, I've learned something in recent days, and just sharing my heart. He said, um, there are a lot of churches that are happy for me to come as their guest preacher. In fact, they're thrilled for me to come as their guest preacher. They, they, they are enthusiastic that I've come to be their guest preacher. But not only would they not want me to be their pastor, they would not want me to join their church. And I was just crushed. I mean, he's one of my dearest friends. I, I, would, I would not only die for him, I'd kill for him. I mean, I would take a bullet for Fred Luger in a heartbeat. I just have such enormous love and respect for him and that he would sense that. And he said, they never said it out loud. He said, but Danny, you know me well enough to know I'm not making this up in my mind. Come as the guest preacher, wonderful. Be my pastor, even join our church, nah, not so much. And so I think we still have a long ways to go. Do I think we are? further down the road in 2015 than we were even 10 years ago or 20. I know we are. I, I'm old enough. Now. I'm, I'm the oldest one up here. I'm 58 years old. I've seen the progress we've made along the way, and I rejoice in all of that, but I'm also acutely aware of the fact we're not nearly where we need to go and where we need to get. So now, I hope I'm not wrong, Malik. I could find out uh, if I were to take an anonymous survey that I flat out missed it about Southeastern Seminary, which would break my heart. Uh, it would absolutely crush me, um, which just means I need to keep pushing the agenda and pushing the agenda and trying to cultivate a world here so that if that indeed did come to pass, not only would people accept it, they would rejoice with it. And that's where I want us to get. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, a very interesting question. It's kind of kick around a little bit. Well, how do you, th I mean, you're, you're, you're uh, African-American, uh -huh. you're a teacher, and you are an administrator. So you, because I do what I do, people don't tell me stuff. <laughs> they, they, they don't tell me stuff. And so I think maybe it's like this, and then later on, I find out, no, it was like this. And so... So you may have it completely, and if right, you do, right. I want to know. Absolutely. So if you say, no, Doc, let me tell you, we ain't even close to being in that, with that world, I'd like to know. So what, what do you see? Okay, yeah, is, is, is my job at stake right now? Absolutely <laughs> no, just, not. Just joking, just joking. Keep it 100. Well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to try to keep, keep it 100, 100. But, you know, so you know, I think it would be very, very interesting. I think you're right in saying that the larger constituency of the SBC would it'd be tough for them. 
Because we're, we're at the point now where we're willing to have people come and instruct for a moment, but not really sit in the captain's chair and sort of shape the systemic, ongoing uh, inner, inner workings and our workings of the institution. Uh, and I, I think that, there's, that there'd be some changes that would, that would happen under a, a minority leader that would be very sort of jarring. I mean, even, yeah, yeah. Even even things like I mean, I think our, our most visible ministry on campus is the chapel context. Um, you know, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I attend and I and I worship. It's a great little break in between you know in the day, and so uh, I, I enjoy it. Um, I think if I if I had the reins to just invite whoever I wanted to invite, it'd be a cornucopia of voices. And and I'm and, and there's some people that I'd probably invite that people would say. Whoa, he, he was, was he singing at the end? What, what was he doing at the end? Is there an organ? Like, where did the organ come from? And so, you know, and so there, there, there would... We got rid of the organ a long time ago. So no, see, I'm not talking back. about a pipe organ. I'm see, talking about a Hammond B3. Hammond B3. Okay, I got you. You know, yeah. you got to get the drums and the, you know, see? So see, I, I think, I think, I, I think there'd be some things that people would, oh my goodness, what's going on? And so I, I think there'd be some, some sort of, some cultural changes that'll be, uh, Helpful. I think the the leader would have to be mindful of knowing the context in which they're serving. Um, the, the the people who would be represented in the uh, chapel pulpit would be. Uh, I mean, I know that we're working very hard towards towards, towards bringing you know a, a variety of voices to sort of that's representative of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I think that would uh, would be energized in, in a very real sense. Um, perhaps, and and then to to be honest with you. It, uh, a minority leader as the president of this institution would probably have a different pool of friends that, they, that they'd probably pull from. And so the, the traditional sort of voices that would be involved in the life of the institution would actually probably change dramatically. Uh, and would that be accepted or not? That's a great question. And, I, and, I, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know that I'd be very curious to hear what, it, what the response would be. And I'm, I'm not sure that it would necessarily be positive, but... Um, you know, just so, yeah, yeah. I, I think we can hope it'd be positive, but I just the jury's still out for me. The jury's still out for me. Pastor Dwayne, um, I hope that that will happen. You know, I I also hope that um, you know we are sensitive to who God brings into our country, Asians. Indians. Indians are very, very, very hard to reach. And we, we are going to need, you know, Hindu faculty who understand. That's a very complex faith. Chinese, one out of every six people in the world. So, you know, they're coming. So, yes, yes to, to that. Let's keep our minds, I think, really broad to see what our nation is becoming and and I think it's okay to be very proactive. Um, it, it seems to me like there there needs to be a a a, a bit of uh, affirmative action in the sense of uh, an institution like Southeastern, even my church, where I'm just being very sensitive to my need. I need more minority leaders. So, you know, I don't. I guess I really want to glorify that concept, and I think. In part, that's why, you know, we're, you're trying to recruit, right? I mean, that's part of your job. So I, I like that. I'm in favor of that. 
Yesterday, Malik, when we were meeting with these Korean brothers, one of the things they said to us point blank was, well, you want to minister to our community better? Uh, how about adding some Korean faculty? And I have to be honest, as of right now, we have no Asian faculty members at all. And the fastest growing demographic group in America is not African-Americans or Hispanics, it's Asians. And so here is, again, a massive influx of persons that God has brought to America for us to evangelize, to equip, and then again, hopefully have the, the humility, if God so least, to hand off the leadership uh, to, to them. And so I, I, I stood indicted uh, when he said, well, you might start. And he wasn't rude or condescending. He said, you just might start by adding an Asian to your faculty. Well, word well received.